Welcome to the Indian Science Show. I'm Turtle. And I'm Annie. And on today's episode, we are going to explore our Indigifact. I'll go ahead and let, I'll, I'll wait <laughs> before I say anything about that. But today is our third installment of being indigenous in the modern world. And I know both of us have a lot to say on that. I don't, we didn't really get to everything we wanted to. No, we definitely didn't. But we talked about kind of the lessons that we've learned for kind of our research and where we're at now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and how it's been very, very difficult to be away from our community while there's been even different or even more challenging obstacles we had mm-hmm. to face in our community. Yeah. And I know one of the main ones is how do you consult with indigenous communities? And mm-hmm. even though it's our own community, our home community, both of us have had a lot of issues in trying to gain support and get official approvals through the various institutions we have at our reservation, which are called the culture committees. <laughs> and it's not that they're the problem, it's the that the expectation that we went in with, mm-hmm. that seemed to be the, the issue, the timeline. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one of the major things I think we talk about is kind of understanding your time frame between undergraduate programs and also graduate programs mm-hmm. involving master's programs and kind of an indigenous maybe phds end up being a better program yeah and and it seems to really come down to just being really aware of the timeline and what you're working with and what you want to accomplish so we even throw in some random russian history oh yeah i love talking (laughs) russian history especially when it gets around the turn into the soviet era Mm -hmm. things get really weird then it's trippy it's really trippy some of the stuff that went on yeah. So, oh, I think we even talk about hemp a little bit. So, it, oh, yeah. a little bit of hemp food egg. So that's the beauty of this episode is we yeah. can basically talk about whatever the hell we want to. I think we just kind of ramble on <laughs> a little bit for an hour. Yeah, and that's exactly what we did. <laughs> so sit back and enjoy the episode. Yeah. Hey everyone, for today's Indigifact, we are going to go with a bit of a <laughs> twist and a turn on. You know what? I honestly did not think that I was going to be so interested once I started looking into this. Right. It's it's super um I don't know. Like unique in a weird way. Yeah. As you go more research on it. It is. It is. And <laughs> I I thought I kind of knew a little bit about it until mm-hmm. I started actually reading some NIH articles and looking into the history and comes to find out that it's way more complex than mm-hmm. I thought. <laughs> I think it's like the pettiest disease i think i've ever read mm-hmm. about do you want do you want to say it oh yeah syphilis <laughs> syphilis so our indigifact today is syphilis yeah. <laughs> and so specifically it's one the disease that for about 500 years was claimed to have come from the americas mm-hmm. coming from the new world to the mm-hmm. old world yeah and you know, honestly i was kind of a little bit bummed out when i found out that may not be true <laughs> Because I was, I always thought, yeah, we we gave them one disease, right? At least one, well, but that, that yeah. might not be true, right? Yeah, that might not be true. And so I found this indigifact. I don't know if it was a fact, but it was like a website that talked about the eleven lies about indigenous science. And so mm-hmm. one of them was that syphilis originated in the Americas. And one thing that I found interesting was um, they kind of have a narrative on all these fact versus fiction ones mm-hmm. and so um they stated that authors who claim as fact that syphilis originated in the americas often fail to note that an estimated 65 percent or more of american indians died from smallpox typhoid scarlet fever influenza dysentery um chickenpox and cholera brought by the american brought to the americas by europeans yeah and i know <laughs> tuberculosis was a really yeah. big deal a lot of the plant medicines that i grew up familiar with were also used for tuber- mm-hmm. tuberculosis. And I know that they found Peruvian mummies with evidence of tuberculosis. Oh, wow. So I didn't know that. There's definitely diseases here before Europeans mm-hmm. showed up. But I, interestingly enough, syphilis <laughs> may not have been one of them. And so there's the three main theories about where it comes from. Or I guess they're, they're not, not theories, they're hypotheses, mm-hmm. which is a little different. We could probably... We could probably talk about that. I don't, like I have a whole show about right. the difference between a theory and a hypothesis. 
So the three, the the one that was the most popular for the longest time was the Colombian one, mm-hmm. where Columbus came back with this horrible disease that they got from the dirty Indian women. Right. <laughs> and and that, that was right at the time when France was invading Italy. And so dun, 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 it had a huge breakout and mm-hmm. it killed millions of Europeans. And so the what I thought was really funny was they all blamed it on each other. They did. <laughs> got Every was, country blamed yeah. each like their enemy country. That's mm-hmm. why I think it was so petty because like everyone was just like blaming everyone. Yeah, else. it's the French disease. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's the Neapolitan disease. <laughs> the German disease. The Castilian disease. <laughs> oh, the 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 Turks coined the term Christian disease. <laughs> yeah, and uh, and I know in India. The the Muslims said it's the Hindu disease, and right. the Hindus were saying no, it's the Muslim disease. <laughs> Just so, so petty, Just everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I think a part of that was because it's so nasty. Mm-hmm. It's it is ridiculously hardcore when it when all the symptoms are displayed, and to the point where people confused it with leprosy. Mm-hmm. And a lot of I think a lot of our listeners listeners can imagine and picture a leper, mm-hmm. but imagine that. But grosser, I guess. Yeah. Um, Because doesn't it... um, Oh, man. I can't remember what the... the, Was it like more... Oh, man. I just saw a picture. And I don't know where it went. Yeah. It it caused some necrosis. Yeah. And people would lose their noses. And I know if a mother contracted it when she was pregnant... During a certain amount uh, stage of development, it actually changed the bone structure and enamel, how enamel mm-hmm. would form on teeth. And that's one of the ways they find out if syphilis was there is they look at uh, babies' skeletons. Mm. Is it Doesn't it also change like lower leg structures? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. There's like, I think, extra bone mm-hmm. that starts developing. So. And so the interesting thing is, so there's the Colombian hypothesis but there's also a pre-Columbian hypothesis talking about the idea that it was actually in the Europe and Asia mm-hmm. long before there was ever contact with the Americas. And then the other third one is the Unitarian. And the basic difference is, so really the the only difference between uni, uni, the Unitarian hypothesis and the pre-Columbian one is that the Unitarian one says that, well, it's actually all over the world. In mm-hmm. different forms. And that gets me thinking of the taxonomy of it. So the Latin name for syphilis is Treponema pallidum. And this is the only uh, form of syphilis. Or actually, I think specifically this is what's called syphilis. Mm. The other yeah, ones yeah, are so. uh, have different names, different common names. But they're spirochetes. And mm. I remember learning a little bit about spirochetes in zoology. But the, so they're... There's also two other different ones. There's the uh, pertinui and caradium. And then another one, uh, I think it might be a subspecies of pallidum, endemium mm-hmm. or endemicum. And they're a form of bacterium. And so they're in the phylum spirochetes and the order spirochetales and the family spirochetaceae. Huh. And they're all, so there's def- there's relatives of syphilis and so the Unitarian hypothesis says that it's basically been all over the world in different forms, but the virulent kind of venereal disease form of mm-hmm. it didn't really blow up in Europe until the late end of the 15th century. So right when mm-hmm. Columbus was coming back. So the the what I guess if there's any conclusions that could be drawn here is that they don't really know where it comes from yet. Yeah. But a lot of evidence points towards the americas Mm -hmm. yet they've they have found other evidence in asia and north africa as well as off the coasts of north africa and then in europe itself Mm -hmm. there was a big uh, excavation done in england where they started to identify like potential lesions and but it come to find out after a little bit of carbon dating analysis uh, it's very likely those post-date columbus So, yeah, syphilis. Syphilis. It's so nasty. And I, I know that I'm glad I wasn't around when this was a big deal. Yeah. Me too. So, <laughs> and it didn't really go away until they invented penicillin. 
What was that guy's name? I already Alexander forgot. Alexander Fleming. Fleming, yeah. <laughs> I remembered it this time. So, thanks, Alexander. You helped us get rid of syphilis. Yeah. <laughs> that's a big deal. And so, some of the, just before we move on here, there's, I thought it was really interesting that some people that I have read a lot about, and as far as their philosophy and stuff, or their art or their work, mm-hmm. they had syphilis, like Oscar Wilde. Wow. He had syphilis. And... Tolst or not Tolst, um, Nietzsche, Friedrich Nietzsche. Oh, dang, really? Yep. He had syphilis. And this is something that I'd read, but it was an interesting reminder that the Tsar of Russia, when it transitioned from being the Grand Principality of Muscovy Mm -hmm. into being the Tsardom of Russia, Mm -hmm. was Ivan the Terrible. And this dude didn't have syphilis for most of his life, Uh but towards the end of his life, it's very likely he contracted it. And some scholars think that's why he kind of got went a little crazy crazy there in the end. And I wouldn't mind doing an episode on that guy. There's not much science to it, but he's just a fascinating character and painted in really negative colors. Mm -hmm. But the reality is, is he didn't kill that many people. Especially right. when you compare him to people like Stalin. Stalin, yeah, yeah, exactly. He like he only killed a couple thousand, maybe. <laughs> but he instituted massive reforms across the country and mm. in, in a lot of ways created the state that would become the Russian Empire. Dang. But anyways yeah, you know a lot more about Russian history than yeah, I do. I'm, <laughs> I'm I'm fascinated by Russian history and especially the, the transition from the Russian Empire into mm-hmm. the Soviet Union and oh, all yeah. the craziness that happened there and what that had the implications that had for the 20th century mm-hmm. and socialism and communism. And it really, in a lot of ways, that was the counterpoint mm-hmm. for Western democracy throughout the 20th century right. was communist socialism or sp- specifically uh, Soviet versions of it. I mean, I think it may be interesting to do like a whole topic on that because I think now people have a weird idea about russia when it comes to russia meddling you know mm. i think that would be cool to kind of do the history about it because i i know a little bit just because i told you this the other day that i love anastasia that mm. movie and so yeah, like i kind of like did like other research and watched youtube videos about like the real anastasia and like kind of what happened with it's a sad story it's a super sad story and, and what, who's your favorite character on that I like the little bat dude. Yeah. Oh, jeez. <laughs> <laughs> the way he kind of talked like what, how I envision Canadians talk. Was Oh, my God. Isn't that like Godfrey? Isn't that who played him? Um, mm, I, I can picture his face. I, I don't, I don't yeah. think I know his name, though. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I loved Anastasia. Yeah. Because I, I, when I, that came out, I was a little girl. You know, you always kind of like love that little princess type. And mm-hmm. yeah. And that figure, Rasputin, mm-hmm. is a fascinating character. Oh, yeah. He was, he's definitely real. Anastasia is real. Mm-hmm. But the storyline well, is, is basically an urban legend. Yeah. Well, I mean, it'd be cool to talk about him because he used a lot of traditional methods, mm-hmm. right? That's why yeah, he was a, decided... he's from Siberia, I think. Mm-hmm. And he used, yeah, they called him a sorcerer and mm-hmm. all this stuff. And, he was arguably one of the greatest seducers of all time. Oh, yeah. He seduced the czar and his wife and in a lot of ways the whole uh, city of St. Petersburg mm-hmm. at one point. But eventually that's the problem with these uh, historical figures that were really good at that is that if they, uh, if they don't do it right, they, the people, they the turn people on you. Uproar, yeah. yeah. And that's exactly what happened. Mm-hmm. He ended up getting murdered and thrown in the river, mm-hmm. <laughs> like really oh, brutally a, murdered. It's a sad story. And you have the family, the yeah, that and that that last czar Nicholas, mm-hmm. he was he wasn't even that bad, com- relatively yeah. speaking. Especially when you compare him to the the people that were in charge of the Soviets, right? Yeah, he, yeah. he was a he was a Boy Scout compared to like mm-hmm. Stalin or um, Gorbachev. Yeah, and I think well, the, what I've come to realize from it, from just like watching youtube videos and kind of learning my own history was that he really loved his wife and his wife was kind of like a seclusive kind of person and so mm-hmm. she didn't like to go out and so they both kind of just stayed at home loved their little girls and then they had the one son yeah you know i don't know it's it's sad it, it might be interesting to kind of yeah, yeah that, with an episode that's an important aspect of 
science is historical context. Mm -hmm. And although we're not historians, understanding the history of mm -hmm. a society that you're working with is really important. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, we could, we could kind of bounce around all sorts of different historical storylines yeah. on an episode about the importance of historical context. Well, I feel like that's kind of what oral traditions are. You know, you end up being your own historian of your own tribe and your own yeah. tribal knowledge. And, uh, hmm. uh, yeah, it really, and understanding history helps you understand where theories come from, mm -hmm. why hypotheses are phrased the way they are, and where science, even certain disciplines, where they mm -hmm. come from. It's, I don't think it's absolutely necessary for every everything to to do science necessary but if you really want to be a well-rounded scientist that can push the envelope and really challenge mm -hmm. and create new ideas you got to understand the history I mean, right. there's no yeah, way around yeah. it exactly and that includes po political stuff it includes economic stuff it includes mm -hmm. cultural stuff yeah. All that plays into the science. Well, even when we did ACES and the guy asked us the question about why we use Western science when science itself originated from multiple different areas of the world, mm -hmm. not just Western areas. Yeah, I that's think, actually yeah. a great point. And I've been re trying to rephrase myself because I totally agree. Mm -hmm. We use an Arabic num numeric system. We do. And a lot of the developments in science came from when the muslims the muslim empire or i guess uh i'm not exactly sure what there's all sorts of different names for it but basically it was one of the most fast spreading and biggest empires in history and it went from india and pakistan all the way to northern spain mm -hmm. and even into southern france at a certain point and that's where certain historical figures and heroes of France step in and they kind of they stop that movement and at, but yeah legit at one point Muslims almost overran Europe mm -hmm. in the late the later part of the uh, first millennium kind of right right around the same time that the Vikings were getting going the Muslims controlled almost the entire Iberian Peninsula and in a lot of ways they're very very deeply responsible for the Renaissance and again, that that could be a whole another episode. Right. <laughs> <laughs> For today, we're basically just going to chat about some of our experiences mm -hmm. and struggles and especially the lessons that we got from the research process as it has unfolded since our initial impressions about how our research is going to unfold. <laughs> yeah, because I think the last time we talked, we kind of just delved into our research and I know that mine has taken... Lots of twists and turns since mm. that episode, so. Yeah, mine too, mine too. And to kind of follow up on that, we'll go ahead and touch on the differences between undergraduate school, master's programs, or graduate school, and our thoughts on the implications for PhD studies and mm -hmm. why we think it may be a better idea for people to at least explore the idea of doing a PhD before a master's mm -hmm. or just skipping over a master's. Yeah, or finding a program where you can do both yeah. in sync. Yeah. yeah, because, yeah, I I got lots of strong opinions on that. And that's actually what my mom told me that mm -hmm. might be a better idea for me to do is just go into a PhD mm -hmm. right away. I'm glad I didn't because I learned some pretty valuable lessons right. in the master's program. But mm, I'm, I'm also kind of <laughs> wishing I did. Yeah, me too. I think I definitely feel like I could get a lot more done with my PhD than, than mm -hmm. what I'm doing right now currently. Yeah. Me too. Uh, yeah, so what? What? which one are we starting with? It don't matter. It don't matter. I guess that's the cool part about <laughs> this topic of being indigenous in the modern world. Yeah. Part three. Part three. So I can start because... Part trace. <laughs> Well, uh, Chatelet. Chatelet. <laughs> we'll do that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, one thing, I guess the main, I don't know if it's a lesson, I guess, um, is that when you want to work with an indigenous community, 
uh, make sure that you have time mm. to actually wait for people to respond to you. Mm-hmm. Um, being patient is great when you have a PhD program, which I think is, when I look at it now, I think that working with indigenous communities, you should only be able to do it when you have your PhD. Hmm. Um, why? Oh, man. <laughs> so, <laughs> here we go. I'm just going to say it. Um, so, it's been, what, about, like, five months waiting to hear back from our culture committee? Mm-hmm. From, from the Salish culture committee? Yeah. And, I, uh, I took a bit of a slower approach than you. Mm-hmm. So, well, I don't think I've been waiting quite as long as you have. Yeah. But, yeah, it's, it's, you, it's you, getting out there. It's getting out there. And so, by the time that and we did last year where we didn't really necessarily reach out to a lot of people but we focused more on our coursework so that way we didn't have to worry about coming here to Syracuse doing a bunch more classes and writing our thesis so we thought that we were doing a good thing but in realization we should have reached out we should have reached out right at the start um so now I'm in the position where I'm trying to graduate in May I don't have approval from the culture committee still and it's kind of like, well, where then does the research go? Mm-hmm. Do I continue to wait, try to get extra funding to maybe do another semester, maybe just do the summer? and uh, Or do I just completely change my idea and start kind of at this new area where I would still work with aromatic plants, but in a different kind of sense? Mm-hmm. And uh, I don't know. I think that's what the, what's the hardest part is because when you're doing this research project and, and it's your own community, you get like this certain tie to it. Like it ends up being like your whole focus for two years and you're kind of intertwined in like everything that you talk about and you kind of bring it up. Um, I know now I look at smells completely different than I did like when I first got here. <laughs> that seems like an oxymoron. I look at smells different. <laughs> I smell smells different. Yeah, yeah. So, That's I mean, cool. my understanding. I, just from different. listening to you, I mm-hmm. do too. Just from listening to your ideas about it. Yeah. And so what then do you, what happens? And I think that's kind of where I'm at now and and learning lessons. And, and I'm happy that I'm still, I don't know if I'm happy. I'm frustrated. I'm sad. I'm happy. I'm a hmm. whole lot of emotions. I'm impatient. I'm trying to be patient. And, you know, you, you try to wait for these communities that you desperately want to work with because you see the need for the research that you're doing. And uh, so in hindsight, I wish I would have got my PhD just so I can have more time to interact with the community. And I think that's what a lot of like community-based indigenous research talks about or kind of these proper ways to do research in indigenous communities is that you have to get to know the community first and you have to understand how the community works. And I thought that I did. You know, I'm going into my own community. I'm doing all this stuff. And because I want to know about this one certain thing, it's not one, but I mean, it's plant knowledge in itself is Mm -hmm. extremely important to people that, uh, you know, I don't know, it's... It's tough. It's tough, yeah. It really is tough. And I think you really you really hit on I think the most important part is the time and and there's really no way to get to know any community whether it's an ecosystem or a human community mm-hmm. except through just spending time there. Yeah. That's I know that that's really the best way to connect to a place is just go hang out there and spend time there. Mhm. And so I was talking to Sophie the other day and we we were laughing because I think that our advisors have such a high standard for us that when you look around at and you talk to other people in different programs and see what their masters are and it seems so simple compared mm. to what we're trying to do. Yeah. And it's like, oh man, like maybe like we have too high of an expectation. But then I think that it's because we know our community so well and we know what they need and we see the need for it, and we see what's happening in other indigenous communities around the world, that we want our community to be like that. Yeah. And I'm a part of that is self-expectations. Mm-hmm. And that definitely plays into that. The fact that we know a lot more details about our community than if we were just going into a place that we'd never been before. Mm-hmm. And 
it's it's a very delicate game to play to have really high standards because in a certain sense it drives you it, it forces you to be better than you are mm-hmm. and i'm a big fan of that philosophy i think too many people give up before they ever really try that mm-hmm. hard and just because it's hard doesn't mean we should give up and there's yeah. a lot of valuable lessons in failing so and i really agree with you as far as the timeline i don't know if it's really that possible to do very good work mm-hmm. in an indigenous community in 2 years mm-hmm. even if we did reach out right away yeah, we'd yeah. it'd still be very limited and that's really just the nature of a masters mm-hmm. it's it's not like we're going to be contributing some massive new right. innovation to <laughs> science here and I think that's what we want to do, though. Mm-hmm. So it's very challenging to have to pull ourselves back and see, wait a minute. Okay, this is just like the lily pad mm-hmm. on the next to on the on the way to the whole pond. Right. I know Robin tells me all the time. She was like, you see your life's work in front of you, but you have to remember that you have to scale it down into those little projects. Yeah. I'm like, oh, yeah. But I mean, I do plan on probably spending the rest of my life working with aromatic plants and mm-hmm. kind of understanding how that plays a role in in indigenous people's lives, not only on reservations, but in urban communities. I think being here. Yeah, the smells you know? are so... It's amazing how much mm-hmm. a smell can impact your thinking. Exactly. And I think that I, I you, you take it for granted when you're home and it's just kind of always surrounding you like... Every morning in high school and middle school and pretty much every morning that I can remember, my dad always smudges. Mm. So there are certain smells that when I hear when when I smell that smell, you know, it's my dad, hundred mm-hmm. percent, and it brings me back to Montana and it brings me back to being in my room or bring me or being on the reservation and being in that location. And I think that because it's and even when I'm here in in Syracuse, I smudge with cedar that was from in the backyard in my parents' backyard. Yeah, I have sage from the um uh, oh my gosh uh uh um that one place <laughs> that one place <laughs> um oh why can I think of the name you know the prairie where we pick bitter bitterroot why can I think of that name Camas Prairie Camas Prairie. Is yeah, that what you're talking about? I think so. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I don't know why I can think of that. And so my sage is from there. It's like all of my smells here are from back home. Mm-hmm. And I always carry it with me. Yeah, and, and it definitely smells different here mm-hmm. when you're out in the woods. Oh, yeah. Way different. It's uh, like a moister yeah, smell. It's m- moist. You, yeah. <laughs> moist and musky. Sorry. Yeah, kinda. musky. Maybe not moist, but musky. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry if you don't like the word moist. <laughs> yeah, moist. <laughs> The word of the day. <laughs> Syphilis and <You're> moist. moist. <laughs> oh, no. That, yeah, that con- that's not a good combination of words at all. No, it's not. <laughs> yeah, and I, I've talked to people that grew up here, and they feel they have a hard time with conifer forests, the way mm-hmm. they smell. That, that it, It's not bad, but it's, it's so different, mm-hmm. and they don't like it as much as they like the smell of the forest here. Right. So it's really, that really fascinates me because... I did eventually get used to it, and I like the deciduous forests here, mm-hmm. but I, I, I need that evergreen. I need right. that, the, yeah. that smell of the pine. Or I, I think eventually I would probably just simply go insane at some point. Right. And that would be a part of it. Lack of proper smells, <laughs> according to my worldview. <laughs> yeah, so it's interesting and... um Learning lessons, I guess, is a good thing. I, I'm super stressed right now. I'm probably more stressed than I've ever been in my entire life right now. Mm. This is kind of at the peak of my stress level. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm learning lessons, and I'm, I'm still happy that I'm going to do the whatever project I end up doing in the end. It's just a time frame, understanding yeah. your limits and understanding the limits of your own research. Mm-hmm. I think that I going into a brand new program and not understanding the time frame of the research that I wanted to do. I don't know. Did it, did it hinder a potential project that I could have done instead where I could have been further along? Um, I don't know. It's a, it's hard to truly regret stuff because with the bad, there's always some form of good. Yeah. And so that's what I, even if 
culture committee doesn't approve my research, like I still have a really high need to do this. And so I'm going to do it whether without, without them, I'm just going to kind of do it in my own time when I'm not in a Western institutionalized setting where Mm -hmm. I'm an IRB, like I'm just going to do it by myself and I'm still going to be able to provide what I hoped for my research to the people in the community. I'm a huge fan of private sector research. Mm -hmm. I think before I ever got into academia in the first place, that was where I was headed. That's what I wanted to do was have my own business so I could do my own research. Mm -hmm. And mostly because I'd heard the horror stories my mom told me about getting tenure and navigating Mm -hmm. the PhD process and having to deal with the politics of an institution. And every institution has its own form of politics. And I'm not saying that's necessarily bad. What I'm saying is that it's an extra challenge. Mm -hmm. And when you're not quite familiar with the research process, that can be really overwhelming. Yeah. And I know that that at a certain point it was for me. Mm-hmm. And so if for any aspiring graduate students out there that might be listening to this, really buckle down and think really hard mm-hmm. about the timeline right from the very start. Yeah. If you're going to do research in indigenous communities, plan to have to spend some time before you even get their thumbs up mm-hmm. in the uh, to even start. Right. And then you have, on top of that, you have to think about your own coursework when you're in school. Oh, yeah. To balance all that. So, and then, like, we had to be TAs. Mm-hmm. So on top of that, we had to do multiple other work that we need. And we're part of a cohort. So that means we have cohort meetings that we have to attend. And then you find yourself in situations where now we lead workshops. So then we have to delve time to that. And then what other, other little things that you have in your life. And mm-hmm. it winds up. Yeah, and it it would seem on the surface that it comes to down to a time management issue, but it really isn't. It's really more about kind of cutting away all the unnecessary mm-hmm. stuff that isn't really serving you at that yeah. point. And I know a lot of people, including myself, have these things we do to yeah. waste time, like watch movies or yeah. go down the YouTube rabbit hole when, <laughs> yeah. yeah, cool, you're learning stuff, but do you really need to learn that right yeah. now? And so I know that the more I've cut out the unnecessary, mm-hmm. the more I've been able to include what I really, truly do want to be doing in with yeah. my time. Well, and I think it's interesting because as an indigenous student, I love to bead. Yeah. And so, and, and beading has always been a part of me since I was like eight. And so finding time to actually bead, do the podcast, do the meetings, mm-hmm. Do school, do research, you know, and do all this other stuff. And then go hang out with the ladies on Friday. Exactly. Oh, yeah. Then I go to the farm and I volunteer my time at the farm because that's one thing that I refuse to kind of give up except for today because yesterday we had, what, negative 20 degree weather all day. So classes were canceled. And so all our meetings are today. And, um, and well, and then also I think that you, when you're an undergrad, you have like four years. And so each year you have a summer. But for your master's program, you get one field season. You get one summer, and that's it. That that wraps up your time for that. And then the other time is school and then writing your thesis. And so mm-hmm. if you can't get it done in that, I would say, what, four months, mm-hmm. three months? That that should be your time frame is that little time for the summer. Yeah. You should be able to do all your interviews, everything then, and it should be ready. Mine wasn't ready. But I also was very naive on the time frame of how long it would take to get in with the culture committee but i think also being an indigenous student i know we talked about this a little the other day about the challenges that you face the kind of the heartaches then the pain and um i don't know so it's kind of hard to wrap all of the emotional side that comes with being an indigenous person yeah you know having your aunt die having family issues with your kids having I don't know, having a bunch of suicides back home, someone being murdered back home. I think it's, it, it, while you may not think that it affects you, I think that it affects you a lot more when you're away because when we have, so we had the suicide of a girl who I, I knew her kid, her little baby more than I think I knew her. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the research that I want to do really kind of 
wants to heal these generation trauma, generational traumas when you're just so lost in drug abuse and sadness and depression and this vicious cycle that how do you break it? And so what I'm trying to do is break that. And so when you have a suicide when you're away, I think that it it affected me a lot more this time, I think, than any other one, even though I really didn't know her. But it's just this idea of trying to find a way to break that. And so when you're at school, a lot of non-Indigenous people don't have that weight on them. Yeah, I think the really the major factor there is the fact, just the simple fact that we're all related, dang near. And that, I mean, there's that common problem of trying to date on your own res mm-hmm. you, in, a lot, in a lot of ways you just can't because mm-hmm. it's probably your cousin right. and so yeah we're we have very similar issues as ghettos do yet in a ghetto they're not all related mm-hmm. it's not a big family so every single incident that happens isn't a community-wide tragedy for us it is especially when it's becoming a constant pattern mm-hmm. And it's definitely a constant pattern, especially over the last three years or so. The suicides are just getting, it's its really, really bad. And thats that was a big part of my family troubles also is my my eldest girl, she her best friend or mm-hmm. one of her best friends were committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, what? I don't even like that phrase, commit suicide as if it's a crime. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, you might look at it as sin or, or however you want to view that. But the simple matter is, is they killed themselves. Yeah. I think we should be more specific about that. And it's tough. It's yeah. really tough to talk about these things. Uh, it's, and I agree. It's harder to be away. And I think a part of that is because we can't be there and hug mm-hmm. our family. We can't be there and cry with them. And so we have to do it alone. And when you feel like you can't help and you're helpless, mm-hmm. that's a really dark place to be. Mm-hmm. And it's tough to bring yourself out of that if you don't have the right tools. Exactly. And then when you're trying to do your research and then your community isn't as supportive as you think that they should be, <laughs> you know, so then you oh, add yeah. that and you're just like, oh, oh man. It's very yeah. deflating. It is. It, and like, that's kind of where I'm at. I'm like deflated a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, and it's, I still see the potential in what I'm doing and I still know that what I'm doing is going to be this great thing because I have talked to members of the community and my family and whether or not maybe they're my family so they're saying that they like it even though maybe they don't but i i trust my family they're really really smart um smart people and i i've talked to other members of the uh, i don't know department of lots of departments and you know just talking to people that i i see the relevance of what i'm doing i think it's just trying to bridge age gaps and understanding education is now a very important thing when it comes to indigenous people is getting your education and kind of how then does that play into your cultural roles when you're kind of away, when you're away at school, you're kind of focusing on random topics like biogeography or um, climate change and, and all these other aspects of it that necessarily don't have a cultural tie to it. And so how then can you prove to other people that you going to school is the benefit of the whole community itself? Yeah. Especially when I know in our community, there's this, there's certain circles that look down on it, Mm -hmm. that look at it as a form of colonization or, and, or just that kind of that smart shaming. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh, smart. You're a smart guy, huh? Yeah. Or or they judge you for leaving the res and going yeah. to a, a school not close, like the University of Montana or Salish Cooney College or somewhere in Montana where you can at least be closer to home when we are in Syracuse, New York. I know. It's about, a, about as far away as we <laughs> yeah. can get right. in the United States. And it's not a tribal college at all. Like, you know, so while we, we I came here for tribal advisors. I yeah, mean, I came here because of Robin. Yeah. Like, lit, just... I didn't even look at the school or the city or anything. I mm-hmm. knew that, well, this is a philosophy I've followed for a long time. It's a big part of my view on learning is if you want to do something and you're, it's, support, it's important enough to you, mm-hmm. you should learn from the best. Yeah. And Robin is one of the best in this burgeoning field of traditional ecological knowledge and its applications in mm-hmm. science. Yeah. And I didn't really have a 
love for plants before I came here. Mm-hmm. I, I do love plants. I think that I, I had an understanding, but my focus was animals. And so coming here and, and knowing what Robin did with Ethnobotany, that's kind of yeah. why I wanted to come and work with her. Because why wouldn't I take the chance to work with someone who is as amazing as Robin is when it comes to Ethnobotany, when me myself am starting to learn and I'm starting to kind of understand how important it is and the understanding of it. And then now I work with a bunch of, well, I volunteer with a bunch of ladies that kind of help open my eyes to a whole nother level of plant knowledge and plant understanding and and healing through plants that I didn't know was possible. Yeah. And it's not always about ingesting them. It's mm-hmm. about developing a, a relationship mm-hmm. with that particular species but even further that particular spot that particular flower bed or that Mm -hmm. particular flower itself each one of these plants are individuals and they're just very very different forms of life Mm -hmm. and yet there's some really cool stuff that they did back in the 70s where they were doing experiments to see if plants can sense their surroundings and they definitely can and they respond to their surroundings also. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're, they're way more complex and they're, they actually have behavioral patterns, if we could call it that, mm-hmm. those responses. It's, it's fascinating. It's truly fascinating. And it blows my mind that plants, oh, they're, they're crazy. They take sunlight and, <laughs> and CO, I mean, and uh, yeah, CO2 and they make life. Mm-hmm. Everything we yeah. eat comes from that process. <laughs> Without that, there, there really would be no life on mm-hmm. this planet. And and there really wasn't yeah. until plants like really yeah. started to emerge. Yeah, there's no yeah. oxygen. I know that's one way that um, astronomers, I, I can't remember the exact discipline, maybe I'll think of it later, where they look for life in that cosmos. Mm-hmm. What is it, astrobiologist, I think? Ooh, that sounds fun, though. Or biological, astrophys- uh, astrobiologist, oh, I think is what it yeah, is. And that kind of makes sense. One of the disciplines that looks for life out there, and one of the ways they do it is through uh, spectroscopy. Spectroscopy, mm. where they look at the electromagnetic spectrum mm-hmm. and they can kind of figure out what the atmosphere of a planet's made of depending on what light's coming off of it. Mm. And one of the key elements that are looking for is oxygen because it does not exist in atmospheres unless there's plants making it or algae or whatever uh, photosynthesizing organism is there. Yeah. That's trippy. That you, we can look. Light years out yeah. into space and be like, oh yeah, that planet probably has life, just for by looking for oxygen. Dang, yeah, we're so smart, and then kind of, and uh, kind of sort of, <laughs> but we're also so <laughs> stupid. <laughs> I think that's why it's so important to work with other people because mm-hmm. in some way or another, every single human is kind of dumb. Yeah, well, and then and then I think to the other side of that, they bring something to the table that you necessarily can. Yeah. think of and yeah. i think that they they have a different perspective that will really make you look at something different because now that the farm bill allowed hemp farmers um before this i was all for hemp and i was all for marijuana on reservations and growing it and kind of the economic benefits from it and the ecological benefits of hemp but working with these ladies who see such a high need for food sovereignty and really food egg which is indian people itself deciding which food is grown getting the money themselves and doing it for themselves i think that instead of putting money towards hemp i think it should be put towards food yeah and and, and i I mean hemp can be a food but (laughs) it's not predominantly a food crop yeah i mean when you when you think about hemp you think more of the um economic benefits or you think of kind of the um, materials that could come from hemp and kind mm-hmm. of the resources that could come from hemp. It's a fascinating plant. It, it, yeah. It's got so many uses. It's crazy. And so I would like, and I texted you and, um, cause one of my cousins posted on Facebook, this business plan. And I was like, Hmm, I don't agree. And I was like, I think, so then I texted you and I was, so I asked you and you said hemp. And so maybe one episode we can have it where mm-hmm. we, we talk I don't about think hemp that first. it should go first, but there, I don't see a reason why we wouldn't grow it and if we yeah. could but i don't think that it should precede food sovereignty initiatives yeah and and i think that's what people and and i know i talked about this earlier but 
I when I so when I go volunteer my time, a lot of it is just sorting seeds. Mm-hmm. So that's sorting, very meditative. Yeah. And when you sit there and you feel the seeds, and and you then so they separate them into three categories. So category one is the seeds that they save to replant because they're kind of the strongest ones. They're the ones that look the best, um, don't have any like discolorations, mm-hmm. good size. The number two is kind of like eh, the main ones. So those become food. And then number three becomes animal food. Mm. So it's like the really, really tiny ones or the broken ones. And then so when you're picking through this, like you get to decide what plants continue, you know? That's like, trippy. It is. You're, you're kind of in a way mm-hmm. acting as uh, natural selection. It is. And, and I don't know. And then when you feel the plants and when you yourself understand how to plant it and then you take the time to grow them and then you can feed the people, I don't something about that trumps money every time oh yeah and and i and it's really hard for people who don't work with the ladies that i do and who only see how monetary benefits can improve i don't know suicide prevention or improve education or improve certain aspects of tribal relations when when we should be focusing on how to get back to traditional ways in the ways of food, interacting with the land, interacting with plants. And that is so hard to explain to people when we live in the world that we live today. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think there really is a way to logically explain <laughs> yeah. that to someone. You just got to get, get their hands in the dirt mm-hmm. and bring them into a place where they can actually develop a relationship with the plants. I know that if I could think of one thing that would help people re-indigenize or be indigenous in the modern world is to develop a strong relationship with plants, mm-hmm. specifically the local plants yeah. where they're spending most of their time. Yeah, because I think now we're coming into this. I know we're going to do a climate change episode too, so I'm not going to talk too much about it. Mm-hmm. But we're coming into an age where certain okay, certain areas of I don't know. You know, climates are changing somewhat a little bit, and so... Yeah, the climate is definitely changing. Yeah, it's changing. So then what in turn, how is that going to affect the plants? How is yeah. that going to affect food resources? That's going to lead to assisted migration, which which is kind of scary because certain tribes may lose certain cultural keystone plants yeah. that, that are vitally important to them. And, and so... The fact that we're so willing to kind of throw everything towards money instead of throwing it in. And what, what is sovereign about money? Like, that's what I don't understand. It's, it's how is money making us a sovereign nation? Unless you're aligning how you're making that money with the value system, mm-hmm. it really, it's taking away your sovereignty. Right. But it can, I do see that it can increase mm-hmm. your level of sovereignty if it's lined up with your value system. Mm-hmm. That's but that's tough. That's really tough to be able to do that when you're in survival mode. Right. And that's where casinos come from. I don't really I don't see that lining up with my value system or the value system of my elders or the what I've learned in ceremony. That doesn't line up at all. Mm-hmm. Yet it, it had lots of support simply because we're in survival mode. Mm-hmm. We're we're sim- we're just trying to make money so we can survive and I know there's a lot of misconceptions about reservations and treaties and indigenous people in the United States as if we have this huge leg up from the government and like it's some form of socialism that's gone horribly awry. But the reality is, is that we're we're just following the contracts. Mm -hmm. These are legal contracts that we signed with the federal government. And that's why we get certain things and every reservation gets has different treaty treaty rights. rights. So it's it's a huge misconception that mm-hmm. that's why we're impoverished. So that's why we have so much drug abuse and violence or alcohol problems and why our reser- some reservations look so trashy. Mm-hmm. It's not because it's failed socialism. I mean, I, there might be certain aspects of it that could be a part of that. But the, re- real, the real issue there is the historical context. Yeah. That is... If you understand the history of these people, whatever reservation we're talking about, and you understand how those treaties were signed and what happened during the treaty mm-hmm. signing period, it would be a lot harder to just say, oh, it's just socialism gone wrong. Right. Because the, 
when you're a defeated people, you got conquered. Mm-hmm. And you're facing the repercussions of all that violence. And not just the violence, but the cultural assimilation process and the violence that comes with that. Mm-hmm. There's no explaining away things by just saying it's a social, the social system. It's not. It's, there's a lot more to it to that. And it's a very complex issue. And to just paint it with one color is a disservice to your own intellectual capacity mm-hmm. to, to just, I think to do that to any complex situation is, is, is that it's just intellectual laziness. Mm-hmm. And in a certain sense, it's, uh, well, I guess that's mostly what it is. You're just lazy, <laughs> just a lazy fucker. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. But I digress. Yeah, the it's a tough one and mm-hmm. I think it's really important to remember that each community is different, yet we do share a lot of the same values. And I know that one of the primary ones that I learned growing up in Montana and going out in the woods and spending time in the mountains and especially hunting is responsibility. Yeah. And this is something that has largely been I don't know if it's been forgotten or if it's been just a part of this evolution of society where they separated the church and state. Mm-hmm. I'm not totally sure exactly where this comes from, but I have I have my ideas. But it's definitely a problem. A lot of people either aren't sure what their responsibilities are or they simply aren't really picking them up mm-hmm. and really in- integrating them into their behavior and into their beliefs, this fact that we have responsibilities. Mm-hmm. And if you don't pick those up and carry them with you and accept them, at some point you're going to become bitter. Yeah. At some point you're going to be very hateful and you're not going to know why. But the why is is you don't have purpose and mm-hmm. you don't have meaning in your life because that's what responsibility gives us. It gives us this higher aim to life, something bigger than ourselves that we can contribute to. And we, we as humans, we need that. Mm-hmm. We need that or... Like I said, you get depressed eventually. Well, I think also that touches a lot on kind of the responsibilities that you have as a indigenous person in the modern world today, because I think that we have a responsibility as to work. We have a responsibility to kids. We have a responsibility for cooking. And like mm. you kind of have all these extra responsibilities that what I what I personally did was I pushed my cultural responsibilities to the side Hmm. and i didn't focus on that especially when i was growing up where i would smudge every day and you know i would pray with my dad and i learned a little bit of salish you know but it wasn't i didn't see the responsibility in myself to do that Hmm. yeah that's a key factor too and so now understanding how important it is for my own responsibility kind of to to learn the language and to kind of learn the importance of plants, learn the importance of animals, kind of stories and stuff like that. I think that's what's missing in a lot of people. I think that we have yeah. a unique we have a unique challenge to to manage both of them, both responsibilities. Mm-hmm. Kind of your your modern side to where you have to do it, but then also your cultural side because I think what you said is correct. I think that once you ignore one side or the other, you know, you both suffer, suffer. Mm -hmm. you know, you're you're not your full person that you should be. Exactly. And I know this is one of the major confusion points for a lot of elders is how to get the young people to come and learn. Mm -hmm. And I've heard the opposite that I've heard this from, I have no, I I probably can't even count them on my fingers and toes. All the young people that complain that the elders aren't teaching them. Mm -hmm. And my first thought is, well, aren't you, isn't it your responsibility to go and ask? Mm -hmm. Isn't it your responsibility to actually learn the language and try to expect the elders to go around all of our different communities to show up at our house or to to come to our class Mm -hmm. to teach us is, I think that's nonsense. Mm -hmm. It's nonsense. For one, they're elders. They can't move around. (laughs) I got way stronger legs than I'm sure I'm going to have when I'm 80. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. And not only that, they just have a little bit less energy than they mm-hmm. would when they say 20 years down uh, earlier in their life. Mm-hmm. So taking on the responsibility, especially our cultural responsibilities as personal ones, mm-hmm. I think that's going to be a major shift for young people and help reconnect the elders 
with the young people. Mm -hmm. But it's also the elders' responsibility to try and understand young people. Yeah. Yes. So it doesn't mean they got to show up to our class and doesn't mean they got to show up to our house and with all these programs and mm-hmm. language and stories, but taking a little effort to understand where we're coming from mm-hmm. and that we live and grew up in a completely different world than they did. Mm-hmm. We use different words. We're used to technology mm-hmm. and there's a lot of other layers to that. And without understanding, it's very difficult to transfer any knowledge to anybody. Right. So we both need to take that responsibility to understand each other. Yeah, you have to meet each other halfway at yeah, least. Like, yeah. And I feel like that that's where it's not coming is elders are so stuck in their way and, and they, they want to help people. But changing that is hard. And, and I had to get mad at my dad. Like I, I literally had to get mad at him for not being part of the elders meeting. Hmm. You know, I, I had to do that because like I was so just kind of – I wouldn't say disappointed, but like I can see the disconnect between elders and, and me and my generation where I use like traditional ecological knowledge, which probably I shouldn't have said in front of elders or even like my mom. <laughs> I know some yeah. people, are, I mean, a lot of people, I mean, myself, when mm. I first heard that, I thought, huh, what is that? I I couldn't really quite under, I think really I had a problem with the word traditional mm-hmm. or like decolonization. Like my mom really hadn't known about what the decolonization movement yeah what is. was she calling it um oh man. she she had a word for it yeah they have a word so that it means so they have different words for different things and i think meeting halfway where you can understand the language or if you have a question about the word being okay asking that and i feel like a lot of elders have that issue of once they hear that word they stop listening instead of like trying to meet you halfway on what that word means to you and kind of what a word that they understand Mm-hmm. I think that as younger people, we're supposed to change our language when we're talking to elders because that's what we're supposed to do. And I think that there's there's that's where the disconnect is, is that we're not meeting each other in the middle. Mm-hmm. Neither one of us. Neither one of yeah. us are. And so I would encourage any young people listening today to think about that. Just take a few moments out of your day and write down your responsibilities mm-hmm. and why those are important to you. And that just that process alone really has a lot of power, powerful implications for your behavior. Right. And elders, I think, are to this point where they are getting desperate to pass this knowledge on. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of the elders I respect, they're more than willing mm-hmm. to change the way they talk, to change the way they understand and the technology they use. But they're, they're not sure where to start. Yeah. And I think it's yeah. our responsibility, people that are kind of seeing these things play out mm-hmm. and where we're kind of in this middle ground area. Mm-hmm. It's it's our responsibility to help that happen, to help that transition happen. And I know a big part of it is becoming mm-hmm. multilingual, kind of yeah. like we were talking about last week, where um, w- we have this language of science mm-hmm. and it's multisyllabic. It's completely ridiculous sometimes and it has no meaning outside of our discipline. Right. And I'm, I would argue even within it sometimes. Yeah. but. It's our responsibility to use that and to be precise with our language, with our science, with our publications, yet at the same time be able to step out of that mm-hmm. and remain, keep that level of precision that science is known for, but changing our words to be more an- understandable. Mm-hmm. And like the that guy that wrote that book, just use good words, man. Yeah, exactly. And I think that coming up with that and not being afraid to put yourself out there first. Yeah. You know, make mistakes, make mistakes and and. Get in trouble. Get, into, <laughs> get you, yelled at. Get yelled at. Because in the end, they're going to end up laughing about it. Cause, yeah. Because I made the mistake of <laughs> when I went to the women's march with the ladies from Onondaga, um, I thought that the city meant we were going to New York City, but it meant we were going to D.C. Oh. <laughs> and so. <laughs> oh, that's way different than yeah. New York. And so the whole time, like, I was like, so I think we were maybe three hours into the drive and I was like, wait, we're going to DC. Hmm. <laughs> and they just were laughing at me and like, they <laughs> laughed the entire time. I was like, oh, my bad. But like, you know, it ends up being like this fun joke, whether you end up, because as an indigenous person, we laugh, I think more than anybody. Cause I mean, I think that when you're faced with a lot of issues, mm-hmm. one way you do it is by laughing. And, and, and I think that you shouldn't be afraid to kind of step out and, I have that issue still sometimes of making that kind of first initial step because it's kind of scary. It's kind of scary, you know, talking to that elder for that first time. Oh, you yeah. Know? 
and uh, you, you feel very unsure about a lot of things. Like, a lot of things run through your mind, like, am I cultural enough? Like, should I should I introduce myself in Salish? Should I, if it, will they look at me wrong if I do it in English? Like, what then, you know? I think there's a lot of issues, but honestly, I think that at this point, making that initial step is is what you have to do. Mm-hmm. No matter how you do it, even if you do it wrong, it's just doing it. Yeah. Yeah, that's real this is really simple. All you got to do is show up. Mm-hmm. All you need to do is get started and the rest tends to take care of itself. Yeah, there's going to be bumps and hurdles in the way and you're going to make mistakes, but you're never going to know anything unless you show up and get started. Right. And that's that's really all it takes. Mm-hmm. And most of the, the, I think a really good example in my own life is going out to like a dinner party or going to some mm-hmm. kind of a social event. Sometimes I'm just so tired right. and I don't want to go anywhere. I just want to <laughs> sit there, eat some chocolate and watch some YouTube or like <laughs> yeah, a Netflix yeah. thing. But every single time I just pick my ass up, Dude. get out the door and show up, uh-huh. I have an amazing time uh-huh. every single time. I don't think there's been one time where I regretted showing up. Yeah, like on our Friday dinner, like I had so much fun. Yeah. Just kind of talking to everybody and like meeting new people. And because there's a lot of new people that I didn't know before mm-hmm. that night. And now, you know, kind of listening to them and, and seeing, I don't know, something about non Indigenous people when you talk about your research and how, if they're truly an Indigenous ally, like how happy they get to listen to you talk about your research and how like they ask questions and they like get really into it. Like it makes you feel, I don't know. Like, like you are doing something worth a purpose because mm-hmm. I think that when when you get kind of lost in this emotional dialect of home and kind of the issues that we're facing with our own research and of our community, it's it's really hard to kind of understand. <laughs> um, hi, Catherine. Kind of, kind of what's what what can you do? And so I think when you have people who support you who are non-indigenous, it's always kind of like a greater level. And, uh, yeah, yeah. I, I totally agree. And I think that's a perfect place to end the show mm-hmm. talking about some of the things that we can do in our own lives to just show up more mm-hmm. and why that's so important is what you just said. It's very invigorating. It's like it recharges your mm-hmm. batteries so you can keep going through the hard yeah. stuff. Cause and, you need that positive to like get over that little negative hump that you're feeling of maybe that day or that hour, like just that little other encouragement like is is definitely worth it Mm -hmm. and if i were to add me i know we gave our tips three tips for being indigenous in the modern world on the last episode we had for this i I, if i could add one it would really be what i just said just show up for yourself first Mm -hmm. and that means getting clear about your responsibilities and what that means and why it's important. Mm-hmm. But then showing up for other people yeah. and showing up for the world mm-hmm. in a sense. And and that's going to be different. It's going to look different for every person. Mm-hmm. But the key is, is that you just do it. Yeah. Like Nike says, right? <laughs> just, just do, do it. it. <laughs> I love that phrase. It's so, There's so much wisdom in that. Right. Just doing it. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna wrap it up. Yeah. Do you have a? Do you, would you have another tip or? Um, no. I think yeah. I'm, I think yours I'm, were pretty good last yeah, time. Yeah. I think it, you know I being here and being back in Syracuse and realizing the importance of indigenous people and, mm-hmm. and kind of how important it is to have indigenous people in education. I, I still think is extremely important having Robin, having Neil, yeah, having you, having Kaya, having these ladies who understand the importance of education, talking with younger people who are trying to get into education. Um, yeah, you know, I I think that that is still extremely important. So don't hesitate to go to school if you're indigenous. Do exactly. it exactly, and it doesn't necessarily have to be academic either. Yeah. there's lots of training programs out there that aren't attached to an institution, mm-hmm. and there's lots of ways to learn mm-hmm. that don't involve getting a college degree so i'm not saying don't go to college what i'm yeah. saying is get clear about your responsibilities because mm-hmm. that itself is going to clarify where you want to go in life exactly and that may or may not involve college mm-hmm. if you do go into college especially graduate studies it's going to be tough mm-hmm. especially when you're trying to balance your culture 
and your responsibilities there with your academic life and your responsibilities <laughs> there and making sure they stay balanced <laughs> is one of the hardest things I've ever done. Yeah. But in so. the end, I'm hoping it's worth it. Yeah. I'll I'm, let you know I'm grateful. <laughs> yeah. That's, I, that's what I'm, I'm grateful, grateful for today is, yeah. is accepting that challenge. Mm-hmm. I'm grateful for just that behavioral pattern of accepting challenges in my life yeah. and facing them when they come, not trying to run away and not trying to justify why it's okay to hide, but do the painful work that needs mm-hmm. to be done in those moments when these challenges arise. I'm grateful. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. I'm, and that, that leads me to like being grateful for the people in my life that understand what I'm going through and like will let me cry on the phone and, you know, will help me through and help me and let me talk and let me vent and my mom and then Charlie and my sisters and, and you and Robin I've cried multiple times in Robin's office <laughs> more than I'd like to admit. Um, you know, and I think that not being afraid to show your emotion as well. I think that, Oh uh, yeah. Um, I, I'm really thankful with the, for the people that let me, but rem- let me feel yeah, my emotion. That's, that's really yeah. important for people to have people that listen like that. Yep. So thankful for all those people. Yeah. Just be careful. You, you re- remember it's your emotion. Mm hmm. That's just, just remember that. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. We'll catch you next time on the Indian Science Show. Bye. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to download the podcast, you can find us at any of the main platforms like iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and definitely leave a review for us on iTunes. It helps a ton. And... It also helps us understand what people would like to hear more of. So we definitely appreciate that. Mm -hmm. And you can also find us at our WordPress page and also on social media, right? Yep. We are on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, all at NDN Science Show. So NDN Science Show, where you can let us know how we're doing or if you have an idea for the show. Yeah, and we'll put out announcements for our releases as well as some other content we're working on trying to get some videos as well as Uh do other different things. So you can find out about all that on those places, the social media. But we also have a WordPress page. And just like Annie said, it's at NDN Science Show. And the spelling of it is N-D-N-S-C-I-E-N-C-E-S-H-O-W dot WordPress dot com. That's IndianScienceShow.wordpress.com. Thanks again for tuning in. We'll catch you on the flip side.